My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listened to a recording of an interview of me by Tom Weber that originally aired live on Minnesota Public Radio on May 30th, 2017. Finally this hour, the trial of St. Anthony Police Officer Geronimo Yanez started this morning in St. Paul. Jury selection underway. Other motions uh, being filed as well. Yanez is charged with second-degree manslaughter and two felony counts of dangerous discharge of a firearm uh, for killing Philando Castile during a traffic stop last year. Trials like this are rare in the U.S. Since 2005, that's 12 years, only 81 officers have been charged with murder or manslaughter for people they've killed while on duty. That's according to data collected by a criminologist at Bowling Green State University, Philip Stinson. NPR News has found has never found, I should say, a case of a police officer in Minnesota facing charges for shooting someone. I am now joined by Philip Stinson from Bowling Green. Philip, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. How does this trial fit into the national story around police shootings and prosecutions that we've been discussing in in recent years? Well, the best estimate that I can give you is that almost 1,000 times each year, each and every year, a on-duty police officer somewhere in the country shoots and kills someone. Um, and, and we really don't have good data on that going back more than about two years. The, the government statistics would, would suggest that it's less than half that, but it's about a thousand times a year. And I've been studying police crime, so crime by sworn law enforcement officers since the beginning of 2005. And as you mentioned a minute ago, uh, since the beginning of 2005, I'm only aware of 81 officers across the country who've been charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting. So it happens only a handful of times. We did see uh, the numbers go up. Uh, slightly since uh, Ferguson uh, in 2015, there were 18 officers charged across the country. Last year, uh, there were 13 officers, and so far this year, only two. So we're dealing with outliers to begin with. It's hard to give you any sort of statistics that have any statistical significance. We can't make any inferences from these numbers. They're such small numbers. But in terms of this case, it's a rarity. It's a rarity that an officer is actually charged, and there's a variety of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that in most of these cases, uh, police officers found to be legally justified. So that is to say that the officer had a reasonable apprehension of an eminent threat of serious bodily injury or deadly force being used against the officer or somebody else. But here, here's the problem with that. If you or I were to step outside right now and shoot and kill somebody, the responding police officers would start with the assumption that we had committed a murder and start their investigation at that point. With police officers, though, the starting assumption by other officers arriving and investigators who are investigating the situation start with the assumption, well, it must have been justified, and they seem to work back from that. So it's it's a difficult thing. So where this case stands, it's unique in a few ways. Um, we have seen in the past three or four years more of these cases involving videos, uh, and certainly that's the case with this. Now, we don't know what's on the dash cam video because it hasn't been publicly released. I think that'll come out at, at trial, but we certainly have the, the aftermath, and as far as I know, this certainly was uh, you know, the first incident of this type that was live-streamed, the aftermath of right. it, the immediate aftermath on, on Facebook. So, you know, in the past, the police have always owned the narrative in these cases. What the police say is the version that goes down as the fact, and it's rarely rebutted with any success. And the videos change that. You know, a dead man can't talk, and it changes it. There's now another side uh, that, uh, you know, the jury can hear. When we think about this, Philip, the body of law, you mentioned how it's so rare, et cetera, et cetera. 
when we think on the policy side of this, put aside any one trial for a moment. The policy, the body of law offers more protections legally, I guess you would say. I don't, I don't know if I worded that right. For officers, when we pass laws, we say this is an important value in our society, and a lot of the laws come down on the side of officers. And there's a whole show to be done about the validity or non-validity of that concept. Is that concept changing? Are the policy thoughts changing? Well, I think people are thinking about it more. I don't think this was a big policy issue that was on anybody's radar until about August of 2014. But here's the thing with the legal standard that I just gave you, and that's from two cases from the uh, Supreme Court of the United States in the 1980s, uh, Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor. You can have an officer who's found to be legally justified in using deadly force and killing somebody, and yet at the same time there can be a finding that it was unnecessary and inappropriate and yet legally justified. And that's a very difficult thing to explain to the public. How could it be justified and yet unnecessary and inappropriate? So I don't know what a better standard would be, but, but you raise a good point as to the policy issues. I think it, it's time that states take a closer look at this and see if they want to have a more restrictive law on uh, justification for using deadly force by sworn law enforcement officers. Are we having the right conversations? Are we asking the right questions, Philip, from your perch? I think we probably are. Uh, you know, we always get into these discussions about, uh, you know, who should be investigating these cases and who should be prosecuting these cases. Should you bring in outside prosecutors? You know, prosecutors rely in their day-to-day -day work on police officers, and it becomes, you know, a difficult situation when they're prosecuting a police officer. So should you bring somebody in from the outside? I, I don't know if there's a right answer there, because I think in many of these cases, the local prosecutors are very well uh, capable of handling the case and probably should handle the case. That's what the elected prosecutor is there to do. But um, I, I think the important thing is that we keep asking these questions and that we don't, uh, you know, let this slide again so that nobody's paying attention. Because up until two or three years ago, virtually nobody was paying attention to this across the country. thousand times a year, on-duty officers shoot and kill someone. That's a lot of shootings. I uh, just want to let you know on a programming note here coming up in about 10 minutes, NPR host Kelly McEvers will have an hour-long special from the Embedded podcast, which is about the impact of police videos. So uh, if you're interested in this conversation I'm having with Philip Stinson here from Bowling Green, stay tuned next hour on NPR News Presents. We'll continue with the Embedded podcasts. Uh, you're sitting there in Ohio where another trial is actually happening right now. We've been hearing about it in the NPR newscast this morning. It's actually the second trial in this case in the Cincinnati area. Remind us of the case and where that fits into all this narrative we're having. So that, that's an officer named uh, Ray Tensing with the University of Cincinnati Police Department, and he was patrolling an area adjacent to but off campus, so a neighborhood surrounding the campus there at Cincinnati. Um, and again, it was an on-duty shooting. This one is, is interesting in that um, we do have dash or body cam video from the officer from the minutes leading up to it and through the whole incident. Um, and, and what we're seeing in these videos, and I think this is the case with, with Tensing, is, at least in my opinion, is that we're seeing statements made by the officer in the immediate aftermath of a shooting uh, and reports that they give that are inconsistent with the video evidence. So Tensing reports that he thought he was going to be run over. Uh, and, and I don't see how he could have been run over. And we have several other cases like that recently. So it raises a lot of questions. Why are these officers 
saying that, or why are they thinking that? Either their recollection's faulty, or they, they really did think that, but it wasn't reasonable because there's no way the car could have moved to the side to run him over from where he was standing. So, you know, that, that's going to be an interesting case. And here's the thing with, with his first trial. Tensing testified in his own defense, and he got on the stand, and even though the prosecution had made the case uh, as to what the standard was, a reasonable officer standard, and they had testimony that the, his conduct was not what a reasonable officer would have done in that situation, he got on the stand and testified that they only shot the man because he felt his life was in danger. And, and we've seen that several times recently. You know, typically a defense lawyer doesn't want to put their own client on their stand uh, to testify in their own defense at a trial where they're on trial. Um, but we're seeing it with these police officer cases um, with uh, some degree of success for the defense. So you either end up in these cases with a mistrial with a hung jury or an outright acquittal. Uh, more often than not, when an officer gets on the stand and testifies uh, that they felt their life was in danger. In fact, I can't think of, while I'm sitting here now, any case where an officer has testified to that and actually been convicted. So the te officer testifying in his or her own defense, the, the numbers at least suggest that that's a good move for the defense. Absolutely. You know, it seems that jurors are very reluctant to second-guess the split-second life-or-death decisions that an on-duty police officer makes in a potentially violent street encounter. Even though, do it. even though in the Philando Castile case, people will say there was no life-and-death situation. I mean, that, that will be the criticism, that you say it's life-and-death, but if you have video, there are moments of the inconsistency where it shows they're not all life-and-death. That's absolutely true, but, but you know, you don't see every angle from the videos. You don't necessarily see the officer's angle of what the officer was seeing, and I think that's important to, to note that. Um, but, but we saw this in other cases, in, in Michael Slager's case in North Charleston, South Carolina, in Michael Brelo's case in Cleveland, Ohio. The officer gets on the stand, and you end up with uh, uh, you know, a hung jury or an acquittal, even though in each of those cases the prosecution, in my opinion, did their job to make it very clear what the legal standard was and provide expert testimony that uh, the officer was not acting reasonably. So it's, it's not a subjective standard of what the officer thought at the time. It's, what in, it's an objective standard of what a reasonable officer in that position would have perceived. By the way, you're number 81 since 2005, a uh, number of officers charged with murder or manslaughter. That's charged. That's not, that doesn't reflect the verdict. Do you know the numbers for whether that actually leads to a conviction? It's actually arrested or charged. We actually had one case out of those 81 where an officer was arrested, but then a grand jury refused to return an indictment. So it, it's, you know, either or arrested or charged. But your question was? Actual convictions. Actual convictions. Well, we've only had 28 officers who've been convicted out of those 81 uh, cases so far. Um, and 20 of those cases out of the 81 are uh, still pending. So 35% of the cases have resulted in a conviction. 40% uh, of the cases have resulted in a non-conviction. So the case was either dismissed after a mistrial where they decided not to re-prosecute or it was an outright acquittal. We had news this morning just about an hour ago from ABC News. One of the officers involved in another incident, Samir Rice, the officer has been terminated for rules violations, another suspended for 10 days. In our final 30 seconds, is that going to be the more common approach that an officer is fired but not charged? 
Yeah, it depends on the state. So if it's a right-to-work state, for example, South Carolina, no matter what an officer is arrested for, whether it's domestic violence, drunk driving, or murder, they're going to be arrested before the – I mean, they're going to be fired probably before the sun comes up the next day. It's just going to be automatic. But it depends on the state. But administrative yeah. rule violations, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't do justice. Philip Simpson from Bowling Green, thanks so much for the, uh, the uh, analysis there. I appreciate your time. Take care. This is NPR News. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. It was recorded on May 30th, 2017, and originally aired live on Minnesota Public Radio. Support for the Police Integrity Loss Podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.